Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, offering a broad range of cardiac and vascular treatments in our community. More information is available at upmc.com slash centralpaheart. Welcome back to The Spark. I'm Scott Lamar. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation last week released its biennial State of the Bay report, which grades the health of the bay in several different areas. As has been the case for most of the 40 years of the bay restoration, this report shows there is good and bad news. Overall, though, the Chesapeake Bay got a 32 score or a D-plus grade. Not great. Joining us on The Spark today is Harry Campbell, Director of Science Policy and Advocacy for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Harry, welcome to the program. As I said, not great. What's going on? Well, Scott, you know, the State of the Bay report looks at three major categories that influence the health and condition of the Chesapeake Bay and its watershed. First and foremost, pollution. How much pollution is coming off of the land and coming from the air into the land and the water that ultimately goes into the Chesapeake, including the Susquehanna River, the largest source of fresh water to the Chesapeake Bay. And then we look at things like habitat, both in the bay, such as submerged aquatic vegetation, but also those critical habitats that are so important, not only to the health and condition of our rivers and streams, but also the Chesapeake Bay, such as streamside forest or forest riparian buffers, forests and upland conditions, as well as other resource lands like wetlands and other things. And then finally, the, the, the Chesapeake Bay, the State of the Bay report also looks at fisheries because they are so critically important, not only to the health of the Chesapeake, but also its economy and its culture. And from that analysis, what we found was that while three scores went up based on those major categories and 13 indicators, three went down. So roughly, we're kind of stuck in a quagmire, if you will, in terms of the Bay restoration efforts. But there is hope, certainly. Big headline that I took away from the report is there's still too much pollution going into the Bay. Like what? Bottom line, we have too much nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment. Now, those first two things are actually called nutrients together. And in small amounts, they're good things. We all need nutrients, including the things that live in our water. But when we disturb the landscape, when we actually create a disequilibrium, if you will, in our watersheds by the way that we change the land, as a result, there's too much of this nitrogen and phosphorus getting into our rivers and streams from things like runoff and snow melt from our agricultural lands or urban suburban developments and parking lots, as well as the discharges from wastewater treatment plants and septic systems. All of these carry nutrients along with them into the water that ultimately gets to the Chesapeake Bay. And then along the way, because of things like climate change and other things, we're seeing more precipitation, more intense precipitation, and that exacerbates the erosion of our streams and stream bed, banks and beds, and that carries with it those little small dirt particles down into the Chesapeake where they smother key habitat in the watershed. So too much pollution overall. Mm. Nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, you just described where that comes from. Mm. In the last few years... Agriculture has been pointed to as the main source of those nutrients. Is it still? 
Yes. Um, all the indications are that for Pennsylvania in particular, but for the watershed, uh, for the whole 64,000 square mile Chesapeake Bay watershed, agriculture is the leading source of nitrogen entering into the Chesapeake Bay. For Pennsylvania, that's about 60% of the nitrogen that gets from Pennsylvania to the Chesapeake is coming from agricultural activities. So too many of those nutrients are leaving the farm and getting into the water. And so there are things in the effort to, fo to restore the bay, but also to restore our own rivers and streams. The leading identified source of stream pollution or impairment in the state of Pennsylvania, with just over 6,400 miles of impairment, is agricultural activities. So that's where our focus point has been and continues to be uh, in Pennsylvania, but in the Bay Watershed broadly. I just spoke with the Secretary of Agriculture, Russell Redding, here in Pennsylvania, and asked him this question. And I'll pose a similar question to you, that things have changed over the years since the Bay Restoration Program started. There was some pushback from farmers early on, but now it seems as though They've changed their minds. They realize that this is good for them as well. The problem has always been, how do they make money, or excuse me, mm -hmm. how do they find the money to pay for what they, they need to do to reduce nitrogen and phosphorus runoff? Absolutely. And it's important to note that like reducing the amount of nitrogen, and phosphorus, and sediment that come off the farm and go into the water is beneficial not only to the environment, but also for the bottom line. Um, but one of the things about that investment in terms of conservation practices, whether it be uh, cover crops or no-tillage, no-till farming, forester riparian buffers, and other types of best management practices that uh, keep pollution from getting into the rivers and streams, is that the return on that investment agriculturally takes oftentimes a while. So you may have a near-term investment in the design and implementation of those practices, but it takes, in some cases, years to see the return on that investment, whether it be in terms of pollution reduction or in terms of the improving the bottom line, the soil health, the productivity, and the market value of the products. Uh, so that's been a focus point of a number of individuals and entities such as Chesapeake Bay Foundation to look at how can we invest in farms in a way in which we are actually truly identifying the value of those best management practices beyond just how much pollution they reduce and actually then trying to correlate that into the marketplace and rewarding those that are actually doing these practices and, and providing a higher value overall, not only for society, but for the products they produce. But the thing is, when you're talking about a long-term investment, Many farmers, maybe most farmers, especially the small farm, are uh, working on very small margins. Now, we did hear Secretary Redding say that 2022 was a better year than expected for many farmers. But still, the fact remains is that they, you know, for this year, next year, their margins are small, and a lot of them look at it as. Do I have the money? Can I survive to make those long-term investments? Yeah, it's critically important. Many people do not realize the system that we have, and this is nationally, but the system that we have in terms of what ultimately what farmers produce versus what it costs. And there's a lot of research that indicates like things such as the, the dollar, the amount of money that a farmer gets back for a gallon of milk that they produce has been stuck in terms, when you account for inflation, has been stuck since like the 1950s. 
And so that what they've done to respond to that is try to increase production. If the value is not increasing with inflation and other things, then I need to increase the production in order to stay in business. With Given those challenges and the pace of our commitments and, the, and what is needed for them, that's why the focus is in on, well, what are the types of things that we can do to help design and implement practices and get them on the ground through cost share programs that help pay for a percentage of the uh, dollar value of implementing a BMP particularly, and then for a commitment to keep that practice on the farm and, and maintained so it's functioning well, are the types of traditional approaches that that uh, many folks, including CBF, have undertaken, as well as the federal government and state government. I haven't heard you mention this for a while. Now, you've been on our program on a regular basis because the Chesapeake Bay Foundation does issue reports kind of in a timely manner of what's going on, if there's goals being met. But uh, this uh, report card is like every two years, as I said, biennial. A word that a lot of people probably don't understand, which I had to look up myself. Anyway, <laughs> that, um, you know, so you do this, but I haven't heard you mention runoff a whole lot lately, that we, there has been a focus on agriculture. What about runoff? Where are we with uh, with runoff from, you know, we know that there uh, is uh, development going on all the time. Yeah. Well, when we talk about runoff, there's runoff on ag land as well, and that's part right. of the whole matrix. But when we typically use that phrase, it's in the context of urban-suburban development, uh, the conversion of forests and farms and uh, meadows to some subdivision strip malls and parking lots and all that kind of good stuff. And we, what, unfortunately, we've seen over the course of time is that that development pace has actually continued to grow. We're losing so, those critical habitats in the Bay Watershed. For the two-year period that we looked at the Bay Watershed in this uh, report, 2020 to 2022, lost about 95,000 acres of those critical upland habitats like wetlands, like uh, forests and other, and other key habitats. And so in Pennsylvania, unfortunately, that as well as in the Bay Watershed, is a continuing problem. It's a relative, comparatively smaller percentage of the overall load, but is a significant problem, particularly if that runoff is not properly managed. When we armorize the landscape, the hydrologic cycle or the water cycle is significantly changed on that site and in that watershed. Too much water that used water that used to go into the ground or go up into the air and evapotranspiration doesn't anymore, and now it, it becomes runoff. It doesn't infiltrate because it has a hard surface or it doesn't uh, go into the air because there's no vegetation to support it. And so it becomes critically important that we employ green infrastructure approaches to try to mimic that hydrologic cycle to the maximum degree practicable each and every time we develop or convert a land. So let's get into some of the grades, Harry. Water clarity got an F grade. Why? And why is it important? Water clarity is a measurement of basically how far we can see down to the bottom, right? And it's I want to see my feet when I'm in the water. Exactly. It is an indicator of a couple of things. First and foremost, the amount of dirt and sediment that's kind of just floating around in the water that's kind of disturbing that water uh, column, if you will. And then two, the amount of potentially algal blooms that are occurring, the little algae that, that actually bloom when there's too much nitrogen and phosphorus and as they decompose, create what is known as a dead zone, areas of little or no dissolved oxygen in the water, water column. 
So water clarity looks at that and is important because the dirtier or murkier the water, the less light that can penetrate down to those bottom areas that are really critical to habitat for things like blue crabs and young of the year fish like shad and striped bass. These are the, these are the things that are really important to the overall Chesapeake Bay and its health and their, the habitat that they use to basically grow up, such as submerged aquatic vegetation. If the water is cloudy, it's just like a cloudy day here, the light is not penetrating into the leaves of our trees. Well, in the, if the water is cloudy, it's not penetrating down far enough to support that submerged aquatic vegetation that provides that habitat and is one of nature's reoxygenators of water. That sounds like something, though, that can't be solved with just one thing, that there are a number of factors that go into water clarity. And that's both one of the challenges and opportunities to the Bay Restoration effort, or any ecosystem restoration effort, frankly, and that is it is a myriad of complex, interrelated ecosystems and influences. And so while we know ex things that we need to do and should be doing because the science is clear on many of them, that interplay and those interrelationships all have to align over the course of time and are not instantaneous until you, when you start to see those improvements. It took a long time to degrade the bay and it's going to take a while to actually restore it as well. But back in the day, and I'll conclude with this, back when Captain John Smith first came into the Chesapeake Bay, there were reports that they could see 20, 30 feet down, complete water clarity, being able to see that in the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay and everything in it. Is it realistic to think that will ever happen again? Um, going back to what it was like over 400 years ago, you know, with 18, 18 million people and growing within the watershed is probably not realistic, but we can do a real good job in getting close to a sustainable and resilient Chesapeake Bay that benefits everyone within the watershed. Now, did Captain John Smith mention that because the waters in Europe were not that clear? <laughs> I'm sure that was part of the actual um, awe, the shock and awe of seeing how clear that water was when they first laid eyes of what would become the Chesapeake. Mm. All right, here's a success story. And that is uh, forest buffer implementation. It got a B. That is trees being planted along the waterways in Pennsylvania and the other states involved in uh, the Chesapeake Bay restoration. Tell me about that. Pennsylvania, we have a specific program here. What's going on? Is that a success story? It's certainly going in the right direction. Uh, like many of the indicators across the Bay Watershed, but in Pennsylvania as well, we'd like to see an increased rate of implementation. Um, but forester riparian buffers or streamside forests are actually one of the most critical practices that Pennsylvania has promised to employ, not only to achieve the Chesapeake Bay commitments, but also to help restore and protect our own rivers and streams. And I could spend a whole day talking about the benefits of trees. I know. I, I saw your, uh, you have a, uh, is that a Yeti? I, uh, yes. It, okay. It says, I love trees on the side. Yep. And uh, you promise not to, go ahead and shake it so everybody, <laughs> see, he, he promised not to shake that, but uh, now I'm calling on you to do it. But uh, so this is, and you know, one of the things I like about this is it's something that doesn't count on government. It doesn't count on farmers, even though they can do that. But 
This is something that everyone can do. Absolutely. The tree, and we have what is known as the Keystone 10 Million Trees Partnership, an effort to plant 10 million trees by the end of 2025, alongside streams, streets, and other high priorities throughout Pennsylvania, but primarily in the Bay Watershed. Trees are so critical, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're, many people think of, oh, they're just quaint little things. They are, they provide so much functionality that is important not only to our ecosystems, but are to our own health and well-being, whether it be the, the air quality that they provide, the oxygen that they release into the air, the carbon sequestration that they take from the air, the soil that they improve that allows for infiltration, the habitat that they provide, as well as keeping nutrients and sediments and other pollutants out of streams and then out of our drinking water. The trees are the most critical practice we can do, protecting and restoring trees in the state of Pennsylvania. We have a lot of them, but we need them in the right places, like alongside our streams, streets, and like those other high priority areas where they have the most opportunity to be functional. That being all said, just like what we were talking about earlier, it takes a while for trees to mature. And so the instant you plant them, they're not going to be fully functioning. So those benefits accrue over 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So the more we plant, the better environment and ecosystem we provide for future generations. Is there a type of tree that's better to plant along streams than others? It all depends on a whole host of factors, but we are, the science indicates that you always have to be considering the right tree in the right place. And so instead of one type of tree, you actually want to provide a whole diverse array of trees to provide that redundancy as well as uh, opportunity for disease resilience so that you don't have one disease whip, you know, wipe out 100 trees in, a, in an area. They may uh, just, if you have a diverse abundance of them, only get a couple. Um, but things that are adapted to wet ecosystems, whether it be like sycamores, uh, certain types of willows, there's a river birches, a whole myriad of trees and shrubs that actually function really, really well alongside streams. All right, I'm going to jump around on you here since we only have a few minutes left, Harry. How do you keep cows out of streams? The easiest thing to do is actually provide fencing, uh, whether it be a permanent fence or a flexible fence. You keep those cows out of stream, that not only helps improve local water quality, but also herd health. Uh, there's a myriad of research out there from veterans, veterinarians and others that indicate that the herd actually improves because then you are not only keeping them out of their own excrement or, and what they're leaving behind, but by taking them out of streams, you're actually providing them with a cleaner alternative watering source oftentimes, which is the main purpose of, of cows being in streams anyway. And so when we do those two things, we're actually seeing an improvement in water quality across the board, but also in the herd itself as mm -hmm. well. Couple other grades. Underwater grasses, you touched on this, and resource lands. Underwater grasses got a D minus, resource lands D plus. Yeah. Resource lands are those things like forests and fields and meadows that provide a, a, a functionality to the watershed as well as a local water quality, but uh, that are being incrementally degraded or chewn up by uh, land development. Oyster and shad both uh, got Fs. You know, the one thing I wonder about with shad is, or, I mean, that was a very low grade. It was like a seven. Mm -hmm. uh, shad ever coming back? Because that seems, I mean, let's face it, 
in the river, in the Susquehanna River, Shad, uh, even though there have been a number of attempts to uh, try to prevent la- to uh, provide ladders that they can get into the mm-hmm. river to come upstream and to spawn, just haven't gotten enough shad upstream. Is that ever coming back? You know, unless we find an alternative way, and there's something folks doing different methodologies out in the Midwest to try to get more of that uh, ability for shad and other types of species to con- jump over or otherwise get around, basically not jump over, but get around <laughs> dams. Unless they develop yeah. legs, then we get a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, then that's a whole other <laughs> issue there. Um, but fish ladders, you know, are, are one idea that's been around for quite some time, but haven't actually been as successful as a lot of people would hope. Um, so there are all alternative ways to get around those dams, but as long as we have those dams, both the big ones and a lot of the small ones, it's going to be a challenge to really sustainably increase the shad population. We only have about a minute and a half left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Pennsylvania has been behind in its efforts to clean up the bay. Now, there has been some progress, mm-hmm. but enough? Uh, we're, there's a lot of hope and momentum in Pennsylvania. The recent investments by the state legislature for establishing a 22 million clean streams fund in the last um, state budget has really provided a lot of momentum to help our farmers and our families and communities uh, improve water quality and invest in conservation efforts. Is it enough? It's a down payment. We need to continue that effort and continue to invest in that program and the people that are part of it in order to actually achieve our commitments to the Bay. Do you have a dollar figure in mind? Not as precise because it varies each year. We actually saw a significant influx in federal funding through the infrastructure program and others, and that's all kind of solidifying now, so I can't give you a precise dollar value other than that to say that it needs to be over the course of a sustained and predictable way. In about 30 seconds left, what would that money, what would that money go for? It would go towards helping to provide outreach, as well as design and implementation of conservation practices and helping to defer those costs to individual landowners and farmers. So when you say outreach, education? Outreach meaning meeting farmers at the kitchen table and talking about the opportunities that are presented to them and communities throughout mm-hmm. the watershed. Harry Campbell is the uh, Director of Science Policy and Advocacy for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Harry, thank you very much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Scott. I'm Scott Lamar. Have yourself a great day.